Chapter 14, Part 1 Fighting to the Elections, August to December 2004 Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable Chapter 14 Fighting to the Elections, August to December 2004 Page 335. From August to December 2004, Multinational Force Iraq, or MNFI, would put General George Casey's new campaign plan into effect. Driven by the United Nations election timeline, the coalition would focus on eliminating insurgent sanctuaries in seven key cities so that voting could take place on schedule in January 2005. In Casey's words, a, quote, fight to the elections, end quote. In Mosul, Tel Afar, North Babil, and Sadr City, the coalition and the Iraqi security forces would continue their ongoing efforts to stabilize the situation and remove the insurgent threat with localized operations. However, in three cities, Samarra, Najaf, and Fallujah, Casey and other coalition leaders judged that major operations would be required to restore government control so that elections could proceed. Removing the insurgent threat in Najaf would require the coalition to continue the war against the Sadrists while securing the kind of Iraqi political support whose absence had thwarted the spring operation against Muqtada Sadr's militants. Removing the insurgent threat to Samarra and eastern Anbar, meanwhile, would require similar efforts to finish the job that had come to such a ragged halt in April. As these operations unfolded, Casey would find in Najaf a model for future combined coalition Iraqi operations, but the planned assault on Sunni insurgents in Fallujah would quickly spill over into an unplanned fight for northern Iraq and demonstrate that the coalition was facing a thinking, operationally adaptive enemy. Operations in Najaf, page 335. The proverbial ink was not dry on MNFI's campaign plan when the tenuous ceasefire with Moqtada Sadr's militia broke down, this time in the Shia shrine city of Najaf. After suffering heavy losses mainly in Baghdad and Karbala during the April 2004 uprisings and early summer, Jaysh al-Mahdi, or JAM, had gravitated to Najaf and negotiated a truce that put the vitally important Imam Ali Mosque and the adjacent Wadi As-Salam Cemetery off-limits to coalition troops, essentially turning Najaf's old city into a rebel safe haven. For the coalition, the problems in Najaf were in the Multinational Division Central South, or MNDCS, area of operations, but were the tactical responsibility of the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit, or MEU. The 11th MEU, U.S. Central Command's or CENTCOM's Theater Reserve, had arrived in the provinces of Najaf and Qadisiyah on July 21, 2004 to help fill the gap left by the sudden withdrawal of Spanish troops following the Madrid-Spain terrorist attacks on March 11, 2004. Taking the place of Task Force Dragon, a composite unit from the 1st Infantry Division, the 11th MEU was the fourth coalition unit in four months assigned to hold Najaf, and trouble was not long in coming for the newly arrived Marines. Shortly after reaching the city, the 11th MEU was immersed in fighting that began with a chance encounter between an American patrol and Sadrist fighters near Moqtada Sadr's family home on August 2nd. Sadr's men responded to the meeting engagement by attacking Najaf's main police station on August 5th, 
and an intense battle ensued that spread into the city's previously off-limits cemetery. During two days of fighting, Marines used tanks, attack helicopters, and fixed-wing close air support to gain the upper hand, including the dropping of 1,000-pound bombs and the nighttime use of AC-130 gunships. When the fighting subsided, coalition losses amounted to a downed UH-1N helicopter, five Marines killed, and 60 wounded, while JAM lost an estimated 350 killed. The intensity of the August 5th and 6th battle convinced coalition officers that the sprawling Wadi As-Salam Cemetery and the Imam Ali Shrine Complex had become insurgent operating bases too large for the 11th MEU to handle on its own. Although Casey and Lieutenant General Thomas Metz had planned to clear Najaf of insurgents before the January 2005 elections, they had not planned to sequence that shrine city first having agreed with Prime Minister Ayad Alawi to begin with the less complicated problem of Samara. However, with the Sadrists having already precipitated a battle in Najaf, the coalition commanders seized the opportunity to remove the JAM threat first. To reinforce the 11th MEU, Multinational Corps Iraq, or MNCI, dispatched an attack helicopter battalion and two army battalions, 1st Battalion 5th Cavalry Regiment and 2nd Battalion 7th Cavalry Regiment, from the 1st Cavalry Division in Baghdad to assist the Marines in clearing the cemetery and restoring order to Najaf. To clarify the chain of command for what would be a Marine-led operation on the ground, MNCI gave Multinational Force West, or MNFW, temporary control of Najaf and Kadesia provinces from the Polish-led MNDCS. While this change fixed the problem of working through MNDCS language barriers and political caveats, Placing MNFW over the coalition troops in Najaf slowed reporting between the city and Baghdad. This eventually led the frustrated MNCI headquarters to communicate directly with the 11th MEU, especially on matters related to the politically important Imam Ali shrine. The speed at which the reinforcing battalions left Baghdad, 1st Battalion 5th Cavalry began moving to Najaf just 12 hours after being alerted, made for an impressive operational maneuver, but created new problems. As the two battalions departed for Najaf, all but two of their Iraqi interpreters refused to go with them, leaving the two units with a sum total of five interpreters for the first two weeks of the battle, which severely hampered the unit's ability to communicate with Iraqi security forces and local Najafis. The rapid movement of the battalions also caused consternation in the 1st Cavalry Division headquarters, which MNCI had tasked a short time before to designate a, quote, working, end quote, corps reserve that was assigned battle space in the Multinational Division Baghdad, or MNDB, area, but could deploy anywhere in the country within 96 hours. In practice, the activation of the working reserve left a sudden gap in the coalition's Baghdad battle space that the 1st Cavalry Division had to scramble to fill. The situation became acute when, as had been the case in the April uprisings, the fighting in Najaf quickly spread across southern Iraq and to Baghdad. Colonel Robert B. Abrams' 1st Brigade, 1st Cavalry Division, which had fought the Sadrists in April, again faced off against JAM for 62 straight days. Fighting Among the Tombstones the fighting in Najaf drew the U.S. troops into an extraordinary urban battlefield the likes of which American forces have rarely experienced. According to Shia Muslims, any believer buried near the tomb of Imam Ali in Najaf is guaranteed to enter paradise, and as a result, the Wadi As-Salam Cemetery is the largest in the world. 
With over five million graves arrayed in a labyrinthine complex of multi-story crypts and underground catacombs, the cemetery was effectively a city in its own right, one with political implications across the entire worldwide community of some 150 million Shia Muslims who considered it sacred ground. After MNCI's reinforcements arrived, U.S. commanders in Najaf prepared to attack from north to south through the cemetery to end its use as a safe haven by thousands of JAM fighters occupying both it and the nearby Imam Ali shrine complex. On August 9th, the attacking U.S. troops began making their way into the vast necropolis while forced to contend with a politically imposed exclusionary zone around the Imam Ali Mosque. Over the next two days, American troops fended off mortars, snipers, and improvised explosive devices, or IED, throughout the forbidding terrain of elaborate crypts in summer temperatures that exceeded 125 degrees. With little respite at night, the oppressive heat sometimes caused the coalition troops' sophisticated electronic systems to fail and, as one historian described it, quote, turned the armored vehicles into furnaces, end quote. To combat the intense heat, some vehicle crews went into battle with bags of intravenous fluid flowing into their veins. The dense collection of graves, crypts, and catacombs made for a complex three-dimensional battlefield. The threat from Sadrist and Iranian snipers inside the cemetery was serious enough to prompt coalition commanders to gather Navy Sea, Air, and Land teams, or SEAL, and Special Forces snipers from across the country, resulting in a productive teaming of special operators with Marine and 1st Cavalry Division snipers. Yet the tight urban environment also resulted in some close melees, as in one incident in which an insurgent scrambled onto a tank from 1st Battalion 5th Cavalry, shot the tank's commander and loader, and then escaped into the graveyard. In this challenging environment, the majority of the Iraqi units accompanying the coalition attackers collapsed. The 405th Iraqi National Guard Battalion dissolved under stress, the 406th Iraqi National Guard Battalion disintegrated under fire, and the 404th Iraqi National Guard Battalion in Karbala became combat ineffective when half of its soldiers refused to deploy to Najaf. Some units of the new Iraqi army performed passably in supporting combat operations, but only the 36th Commando Battalion, working with Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force, or CJSOTF, advisors, managed to conduct high-intensity kinetic combat operations. The battalion fought in the challenging urban environment and provided critical reconnaissance when a few of its native Najafi soldiers changed into civilian clothes and scouted Sadrists' positions near the Imam Ali Shrine. With this intelligence in hand, the battalion prepared to assault and clear the shrine, if Iraqi and coalition leaders ordered them to do so. Ceasefire with the Sadrists As the 11th MEU and the Army Cavalry Battalions made their way through the cemetery on August 11th, the Iraqi government began negotiations with the Sadrists that produced a series of sporadic ceasefires. Throughout more than a week of unproductive talks, the fighting continued, with coalition troops inflicting heavy losses on JAM and shrinking the militia's foothold in the city, while Muqtada Sadr and his spokesmen denounced the Iraqi government as illegitimate and called for a general insurrection to expel the coalition. By August 24th, Sadr and his militia were practically surrounded in the area around the shrine, while the exclusionary zone around the mosque had shrunk to a mere 100 meters. As the coalition troops prepared for a three-battalion assault on the remaining JAM fighters, 
Prime Minister Ayad Alawi pressed Casey to order coalition troops to attack into the shrine itself, where Sadr was reportedly sheltering. In Alawi's view, the situation was at a decisive point. Although Grand Ayatollah Ali Husseini Sistani had been in London, United Kingdom, for medical treatment during the fighting, he was due back in Iraq within hours, and the Prime Minister anticipated that the returning Sistani would call for a ceasefire that would enable Sadr and his fighters to survive and fight again another day. Meeting with Casey and other coalition leaders in his residence on the evening of August 24th, Alawi urged the MNFI commander to agree to, quote, finish the job, end quote, against Sadr while it was still possible, and announced that he was ready to authorize Iraqi troops to attack the mosque with coalition support. A skeptical Casey, judging that Alawi and coalition diplomats were on the verge of ordering a disastrous military operation that could damage Shiism's holiest structure, attempted to restrain the prime minister's inclinations. An operation in the shrine would require the attacking troops to develop extensive intelligence and use extraordinary discipline, Casey observed, and though the Iraqi commandos had demonstrated skill in less complex operations, Casey told Alawi, quote, they aren't ready to do that yet, end quote. To buy more time, Alawi suggested that Casey should close Iraq's airspace and ports in order to block Sistani's plane from landing, but Casey demurred by observing that, since Iraq was sovereign, any such decision needed to come from Alawi's government. One factor staying Casey's hand was that he believed he simply did not have sufficient awareness of the situation in Najaf to assess the coalition's options. To gain clarity on the situation on the ground, Casey decided on the night of August 24th to dispatch Metz to the Shrine City to provide a personal assessment. On August 25th, Metz reported that with the mosque surrounded, capturing Sadr was possible, but risky, and likely to involve high casualties. However, the dilemma was quickly overcome by events. To Alawi's frustration, before he could persuade Casey to order coalition forces to support an assault into the mosque to capture Sadr, Sistani landed in Basra and began brokering a ceasefire. On August 26, Sistani's efforts yielded an agreement for Sadr and his men to withdraw peacefully from the shrine. Unlike Alawi, Casey harbored no regrets about Sadr's escape from Najaf. As the days passed, Casey came to doubt that Sadr had actually been in the shrine on August 24th and 25th because some delayed reports claimed the insurgent leader had slipped through the coalition's tightening noose a few days earlier. Despite this second major confrontation with JAM, Casey judged that the Sunni insurgent groups were still a greater threat to Iraq's long-term stability. Quote, I didn't see JAM as the chief threat, he recalled later. In August in Najaf, there was a kind of countrywide uprising. But I would say that was more of a tactical threat. By that I mean, it was a lot of violence in a short period of time, but it never threatened to undermine the whole mission. The main threat was the former regime insurgency. End quote. To Casey's point, Moqtada Sadr and his militia had indeed been dealt a serious blow. Sadr had been forced to slink out of Najaf with the shrine and city back in government hands. His forces had also been devastated, with an estimated 1,500 of his fighters killed. The coalition, meanwhile, had lost seven marines and three soldiers killed. Sadr's uprising had also alienated Najaf's local leaders by disturbing the pilgrimage and religious tourist trade on which the city depended, 
and as a result, the political balance in Najaf shifted toward Sadr's principal rivals, Abdul Aziz al-Hakim and his Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, or SCIRI. For many coalition and Iraqi observers, the negotiated ceasefire and Sadr's escape were an ominous development, leaving intact an organization that still posed a threat to the coalition's end state of a representative and U.S.-allied Iraqi government. In the aftermath of the battle, Lieutenant Colonel Miles Miyamasu, the commander of the 1st Battalion, 5th Cavalry Regiment, put it succinctly, quote, With Sadr, it's not over. It's just going to be different. End quote. Casey and the Najaf Model For Casey, the battle in Najaf was a model for how future combat operations should be conducted, and he attempted to copy it elsewhere several times during his command tenure. The Najaf model had three main ingredients. Iraqi security forces collaborating with coalition advisors in the military domain, supportive Iraqi government leaders providing political top cover to legitimize coalition combat operations, and economic reconstruction following closely on the heels of military operations. In political terms, Casey considered confronting Muqtada Sadr in Najaf a significant political achievement in that it had united the nascent Iraqi government against an insurgent menace for the first time. Quote, Strategically, Najaf was important to us because we needed a vehicle that would cause the Alawi government to come together and have a success, end quote, Casey recalled later. Unlike the April battle in Fallujah, the Najaf battle had seen the Iraqi government announce its support of coalition military actions, very different from the Iraqi governing council's threats to resign during the April 2004 fighting. While some of this was the result of Alawi's personal involvement, it was also a sign of the political spade work Casey and Ambassador John Negroponte had done to ensure Iraqi leaders would not blanch when the inevitable collateral damage occurred. Casey observed later, quote, One of the lessons learned from the first Fallujah was that you've got to keep the Iraqi political leadership behind the military operations, or you have a lot of military effort for nothing. End quote. Casey also concluded that the Najaf operation had validated the idea that reconstruction would show Iraqis that after the fighting stopped, the coalition had their best interests in mind, thereby mitigating the antibody effect of coalition forces and buying additional time for training the Iraqi security forces. The sooner reconstruction could begin after the guns fell silent, the better, Casey judged, and ideally, plans for reconstruction would be made in parallel with plans for combat operations. By mid-November 2004, the coalition had started 226 projects in Najaf valued at over $50 million. The 11th MEU alone distributed almost $45 million in condolence payments and damage compensation claims while starting construction of eight new schools and repairing 24 more. The experience at Najaf also convinced Casey that successful combat operations required the meaningful involvement of Iraqi troops in order to put an Iraqi face on the conflict. Casey believed Iraqi troops were indispensable in politically sensitive operations such as entry into insurgent-held mosques and the capture of insurgent allied political figures. Iraqis also provided situational awareness and local intelligence that coalition units could not hope to acquire on their own. To these ends, Casey judged that Najaf had shown that Iraqi units could perform well when paired with coalition advisors. Quote, we had, with the Iraqi security forces, the early version of transition teams, end quote, Casey recalled. Quote, 
What we found was the Iraqi units do okay when we're with them. That became kind of a lesson that was going to expand into the transition strategy. End quote. This premise would later become a bedrock of MNFI's campaign plan as the headquarters reassessed the situation following the January 2005 elections. The Iraqi 36th Commando Battalion Not all of the lessons the coalition drew from Najaf were valid. Most significantly, the Iraqi security forces' performance in Najaf had been somewhat overstated. In fact, most of the Iraqi army units engaged in Najaf had performed poorly under fire or disintegrated outright, even when paired with Multinational Security Transition Command Iraq, or MNSTCI's, advisor support teams. The 36th Commando Battalion, the single Iraqi unit that had fought well enough to justify Casey's impressions of the security forces, was not representative of the rest of the new Iraqi army. In late 2004, most Iraqi units were close to ethnically homogenous, either mostly Shia, Kurd, or Sunni, despite MNSTCI's intent to promote ethnic mixing. By contrast, from its inception in the hands of the CJSOTF, the 36th Commando Battalion was an Iraqi unit unlike any other. The battalion had originally been authorized by CENTCOM Commander General John Abizade in response to complaints from five of Iraq's largest political parties that wanted a greater share in re-establishing security, and the CJSOTF had received the mission to build and mentor it. Recognizing the potential danger of ethnically homogeneous units, CJSOTF leaders rigorously enforced a heterogeneous composition that roughly matched Iraq's demographics. The Kurdish Democratic Party provided approximately 28% of the manpower for the unit, Ahmad Chalabi's Iraqi National Congress 22%, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan 21%, Alawi's Iraqi National Congress 15%, and SCIRI 15%. The battalion had a Sunni, Shia, and Arab-Kurd mix at every level, resulting in an organization whose members, in the words of one coalition advisor, quote, sort of policed each other and kept each other honest, end quote. As the diverse members of the 36th Commando Battalion had fought shoulder to shoulder in 2004, they had forged a unit identity that was Iraqi rather than ethno-sectarian, a factor that helped overcome Iraqi soldiers' inherent reluctance to deploy outside their home area. It also helped overcome the reticence common in other units to fighting and killing fellow countrymen, especially those of the same ethno-religious group. Beyond its ethnic makeup, the 36th Commando Battalion was distinguished from the rest of the Iraqi army in its assessment and selection process. Recruits who did not meet tough standards were sent home. Only 389 of 508 Iraqis in the first group of applicants completed the training, and a similar selection percentage persisted as the unit expanded over time and became part of a larger Iraqi Special Operations Forces Brigade. Coalition leaders also allowed the CJSOTF to equip the 36th Commando Battalion differently from the remainder of the Iraqi army by allowing the battalion to use North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, weapons and equipment, to include M4 rifles, body armor, sniper rifles, and U.S. night vision devices. While training and equipping the commandos with NATO equipment took time and occurred gradually, it was a decision that would both enhance the unit's capabilities and magnify its differences from other Iraqi army units. Even beyond the June 2004 transfer of sovereignty, the 36th Commando Battalion's CJSOTF advisors retained key authorities over their protégés, including making hiring and firing decisions and controlling the unit's pay, 
factors that reduced the problem of corruption that plagued many other Iraqi units. Unlike most other Iraqi units, the battalion's advisors were paired with them throughout the organization's entire history, from initial training through employment on the battlefield, a matching that continued across multiple American rotations. Over time, the 36th Commando Battalion developed such skilled combat capabilities that some coalition advisors declared the only way to tell the Iraqi commandos from their CJSOTF counterparts was that the Americans tended to be taller. The 36th Commando Battalion's abilities and will to fight in Najaf had been impressively atypical, hardly a performance on which to make broad assumptions about the future role of the Iraqi security forces in the campaign to secure and stabilize the country. Operations in Samarra After Najaf, the coalition commands turned their attention to the insurgent stronghold in Samarra, another of the seven cities the coalition judged to be crucial to conducting successful elections. The city's situation was a volatile one, especially because it held one of Shia Islam's four holiest shrines, the Al-Asqariya Mosque where the remains of the 10th and 11th Shia Imams were buried, and the point from which most Shia Muslims believed the 12th Imam disappeared from the earth. However, Samarra was also a Sunni-majority city and former Ba'athist stronghold of 340,000 people that, by fall 2004, had fallen into insurgent hands. The sectarian issues involved and the town's relative proximity to Baghdad meant that its position as an insurgent base was a threat to the January elections. Casey also judged that Samarra, like Najaf, was another, quote, strategic opportunity for the Iraqi interim government to have success against insurgents and terrorists in a Sunni area, end quote, all of which pointed toward a large-scale coalition operation to secure the city before 2004 was over. Though the 1st Infantry Division had retaken the city in the April uprisings, Samara's security situation had deteriorated as Combined Joint Task Force 7, or CJTF-7, withdrew U.S. units from Iraqi cities in May and June. In June 2004, just two months after the division had cleared Samara, the city council president had been intimidated into resigning, the city's police force had defected, and the local Iraqi National Guard battalion commander had deserted, leaving his unit to disintegrate. By fall 2004, only one CJSOTF Operational Detachment Alpha, or ODA, was stationed inside the city, with one battalion from the 1st Infantry Division garrisoned a 30-minute drive away, meaning the city was under neither coalition or government control. Recognizing that the city needed to be retaken, Major General John Batiste's 1st Infantry Division conducted shaping operations from July through September in preparation for a large-scale assault. The shaping operations were designed to wear down insurgent forces by luring them into battle and thus enabling the coalition to understand better the insurgent networks. The division also received, at the last minute, six Iraqi army and police battalions to lend additional legitimacy to its operations. By the time the shaping operations had matured, the task of taking the city itself had become much simpler. On October 1, 2004, the division launched Operation Baton Rouge, a two-day clearing of the city by six U.S. battalions under its 2nd Brigade combat team. In those two days of combat against a well-prepared enemy, the Brigade combat team killed 127 insurgents and captured 128 more, while losing one soldier killed and eight wounded. The long preparatory phase allowed the coalition troops to spare the city from significant destruction, and, as a result, civilian casualties were minimal. 
At the MNFI level, Samara seemed to validate the lessons of the Najaf model, especially in terms of the Iraqi role. Two of the six Iraqi battalions assigned to the operation fought fiercely. A special police commando battalion and the 36th commando battalion, supported by MNSTCI and CJSOTF advisors, respectively, performed tasks that would have been politically sensitive for coalition troops, including clearing a hospital used by insurgents and forcibly entering the insurgent-held Al-Askaria Mosque. As soon as the heaviest fighting concluded, the 1st Infantry Division initiated 22 reconstruction projects valued at $10 million to help garner popular support. Unfortunately, obtaining long-term support and funding for reconstruction proved elusive, as future Shia-dominated Iraqi governments were slow to provide national-level assistance to the Sunni-majority city. At the tactical level, however, Samara yielded some lessons that were contrary to MNFI's plans. The 1st Infantry Division had learned that keeping cities secure required U.S. troops living in the city, not commuting to their area of operations from distant bases. Having been forced to cope with the results of what happened when no coalition forces were based in the city, after the battle the division moved forces back into Samara and reopened outposts inside the city's confines. The Second Battle of Fallujah, November 2004 Page 344 Fallujah in Insurgent Hands Buoyed by the success of combined operations in Najaf and Samara, the coalition next focused on insurgent-held Fallujah, the city Casey had selected to be the last stronghold cleared before the elections because he believed it would be the most difficult. Since the first Battle of Fallujah in April 2004, the city had become a magnet for both Iraqi Sunni insurgents who wanted to join the resistance against the United States and foreign militants who sought to join what they considered a worldwide jihad. By the late summer of 2004, the Fallujah Brigade that had been left to secure the city in April had become a visible failure, with its various portions either ineffective or joining the insurgency. Ironically, the coalition-created Fallujah Brigade was effectively replaced by the Fallujah Resistance Brigade, a loose insurgent confederation directed by a Fallujah Mujahideen Shura Council comprised of leaders from 39 different insurgent organizations. While no one leader controlled the council, Sheikh Abdullah Janabi, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, and Fallujah native Omar Hadid were its dominant personalities. The council also enjoyed the support of prominent cleric Harith al-Dari and his Association of Muslim Scholars, which considered itself the political wing of the Sunni insurgency. Despite their operational collaboration, the loose confederation of Fallujah insurgents at times broke down in power struggles and disagreements over strategy and religious orthodoxy. Within Toid wal-Jihad, Omar Hadid, a Fallujah electrician who had risen to prominence as a battlefield commander, often clashed with the Jordanian Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Other conflicts among the various groups at times escalated into violence. When the Albu Isa tribe attempted in July to set up a new Jordanian-trained police force in its tribal area, Sheikh Abdullah Janabi's men kidnapped the nephew of the Albu Isa Sheikh as punishment, after which the Albu Isa tried, but failed, to assassinate Janabi. Also in July, a dispute between the more pragmatic Janabi, who believed in limiting insurgent attacks to avoid a large-scale coalition response, and Zarqawi, who believed in striking the coalition whenever possible, devolved into fighting, with Janabi issuing a fatwa ordering the killing of Zarqawi's local emir. 
demonstrating how quickly alliances shifted. In August, Janabi's group cooperated with Zarqawi's Toweed Wal Jihad to capture the compounds of the 505th and 506th Iraqi National Guard battalions near Fallujah. After defeating the two garrisons, the attacking insurgents tortured and killed several Iraqi National Guard leaders and converted the National Guard bases into insurgent headquarters. The executions of the National Guard leaders, who were members of the Albu Marai tribe, led that tribe to change sides and support the coalition, demanding vengeance for the killings. By September, the temporary alliance between Janabi and Toweed Wal Jihad had broken down again, with Janabi openly critical of the group's more brutal methods and implementation of extreme religious standards. As Zarqawi's Toweed Wal Jihad gradually made Fallujah its headquarters, foreign fighters flocked to the city, swelling the number of insurgents there to as many as 4,000. Fallujans made up about 50% of this number, other Anbaris roughly 30%, and foreign fighters 20%. The rise of Toweed Wal Jihad and other Salafi groups, as well as the influx of foreign fighters, radicalized the insurgency in the city and led to the imposition of Sharia law and basic functions of an Islamic state in many neighborhoods. Religious police began patrolling the streets to promote virtue and punish vice. Religious judges were appointed to rule over Sharia courts, and public punishments and executions became commonplace. In the words of Lue Ali Hussein, a Shia civilian from Fallujah, quote, Foreign fighters began to drift into the city as things got tenser. Yemenis, Saudis, Moroccans, Palestinians, Syrians, Lebanese, thousands of them. They took over the whole city. The foreigners were uneducated and had weird ideas about religion, like they had been brainwashed by fanatics. They forbid smoking, for example. Anyone caught with a cigarette would have his fingers chopped off. They would not allow vegetable sellers to display cucumbers and tomatoes next to each other because they considered that too erotic. They would put underwear on sheep. They apparently thought it was against Islam to allow a female animal to expose her genitals. End quote. Implementing Zarqawi's sectarian agenda, the jihadists began to intimidate and kill Shia civilians in Fallujah. Quote, I never had any troubles being a Shia in Fallujah during all my years there, Luwe Ali Hussein explained later, and in the early days of the resistance, Iraqi Shia and Sunnis were working together just fine. But as the foreigners began to take over, Shia like me were pushed to the side and eventually threatened by these outsiders. End quote. After Sunni jihadists executed several of his Shia friends, Hussein fled to Baghdad and joined JAM, never to return to Fallujah. By September, the first MEF staff headquartered just outside Fallujah had clearly recognized this metastasis and characterized the city as, quote, a safe haven for foreign fighters, terrorists, and insurgents, a cancer on the rest of Anbar province, end quote. The Politics of the Fallujah Operation Mindful that political pressure had halted the April 2004 assault on Fallujah, coalition leaders in late 2004 were determined to lay a better political groundwork with their Iraqi government counterparts ahead of the November operation. Paired with Negroponte, Casey began working to persuade Alawi of the need to retake the city. Quote, We have to start together, stay together, finish together. End quote, Casey recalled telling Alawi, quote, If we start this, you've got to commit to me that you'll have the political support to finish it. End quote. As part of his end of the bargain, 
Alawi delivered a series of emergency decrees to facilitate operations in Fallujah, including a mid-September edict that disbanded the Fallujah Brigade and the city's police force to simplify the identification of enemy fighters and avoid the optic of coalition forces fighting men in Iraqi government uniforms. On November 7th, just before combat operations began, Alawi declared 60 days of emergency rule and a traffic ban in the city, as well as the closure of the borders with Syria and Jordan to make the arrival of insurgent reinforcements or the escape of insurgent leaders more difficult. The Prime Minister also went on Iraqi television and radio to explain the government's actions. Scarred by the information operations failures of the first Battle of Fallujah in April, when the media had depicted the fight against insurgents in the city in highly charged terms, Metz and other senior leaders made information operations a key component of the pending mission. Reporters were embedded with almost all key ground units to facilitate reporting that could discredit false insurgent claims of coalition war crimes. Alawi also recognized the importance of the battle of perceptions and observed to Casey that there was, quote, a risk of the impression being given of an impending U.S. invasion of Fallujah rather than a combined Iraqi-slash-MNFI operation, end quote. To counter this idea, Alawi and Casey agreed that Arabic media reporters should embed with Iraqi units taking part in the operation, and an Iraqi general should serve as spokesperson for the operation and be the primary conduit to Arabic media outlets. One target, in particular, would require special information operations handling. Fallujah's hospital had been a rich source of insurgent propaganda during the April battle, when, as MNCI Commander Metz explained, quote, the enemy would use the hospital as a safe haven every time we would strike the insurgency. They would claim all these atrocities and go to the hospital, and like Baghdad Bob, the Iraqi Minister of Information during the invasion, there was Dr. Bob that would just tell of all the atrocities which we knew were not true because we would watch the strikes with UAVs and watch the one or two people that were taken to the hospital instead of 30. End quote. Mindful of the hospital's importance, coalition commanders developed early plans for the 36th Commando Battalion, supported by CGSOTF advisors, to seize the hospital during the opening phase of the operation and prevent its use once again by insurgent propagandists. Al-Fajr in Fallujah Originally named Phantom Fury, the operation to retake Fallujah was renamed Al-Fajr, Arabic for New Dawn, at Prime Minister Alawi's suggestion to emphasize that it was a combined Iraqi coalition operation. In Casey's conception, the operation was meant to secure the approaches to Baghdad and prevent car bomb factories and insurgent cells from sabotaging the election in the capital just a few weeks away. By the time detailed operational planning for Al-Fajr began, the senior Marine leadership of MNFW had changed with Major General Richard F. Natonsky replacing Major General James Mattis as commander of the 1st Marine Division, and Lieutenant General John F. Sattler replacing Lieutenant General James T. Conway as commander of 1st MEF and MNFW. Natonsky nested his intent for the operation within that of MNCI, to eliminate the insurgent sanctuary, set the conditions for local control, and secure the approaches to Baghdad. However, Sattler's greatest concern, as well as the concern of MNCI officers who had been scarred by the premature termination of the first Fallujah battle, was in generating sufficient combat power and resources for the operation. Concluding that the upcoming operation would require more than Regimental Combat Team, or RCT-1, already assigned to the Fallujah area, 
Sattler ordered Regimental Combat Team 7, originally assigned the stretch of the Euphrates Valley from the town of Hit to the Syrian border, to consolidate on Fallujah. Meanwhile, at the operational level, METS and MNCI ordered significant reinforcements to move to eastern Anbar. Mindful that the insurgents had cut the coalition supply lines in April, MNCI assigned 2nd Brigade 1st Cavalry Division to MNFW to protect rear areas and lines of communications around Fallujah. MNCI also committed the Corps Reserve, a striker battalion from Mosul, to assist 2nd Brigade in establishing a cordon around Fallujah, freeing Natansky and his Marines of the task of protecting their rear area as they focused on the city. MNCI and MNFW also built a massive stockpile of supplies near Fallujah to avoid the logistical pressure that had come near to breaking the coalition in April. The stockpiling amounted to a rejection of the coalition's normal Walmart-style, just-in-time logistics delivery, but as Natansky observed, quote, Walmart doesn't have to contend with ambushes or improvised explosive devices, end quote. Other units were drawn from elsewhere in Iraq and outside the theater. The 2nd Battalion, 7th Cavalry Regiment, a battalion from the 1st Cavalry Division that had fought alongside the Marines during the Battle of Najaf, was attached to Regimental Combat Team 7, while 2nd Battalion, 2nd Infantry Regiment from the 1st Infantry Division in MNDNC was attached to RCT-1. The two army battalions would provide much-needed armor capability that had been absent from the April battle, and a battalion of army field artillery would provide additional fire support. In a rare move, British leaders deployed the United Kingdom's Black Watch Battle Group, a battalion task force, from Dikar province to the eastern portion of MNFW's sector in North Babil, freeing the RCT-1 units there to join the Fallujah battle. However, in a demonstration of the challenges of coalition warfare, moving the battle group required Prime Minister Tony Blair's approval in a process that took nearly three weeks. Also joining MNFW in Fallujah was the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit, CENTCOM's theater reserve that had been reconstituted after the commitment of the 11th MEU to Najaf. The 24th MEU's deployment was a short-notice alert that sent it to Iraq by aircraft and cargo ships rather than the normal mode of amphibious assault ships. The additional Marines went to North Babil province to allow RCT-1 to concentrate its forces further on Fallujah. A third MEU, the Okinawa-based 31st, which served as the theater reserve for the Pacific Command Area of Operations, was ordered to deploy rapidly to Iraq to provide additional reinforcements for the operation. Altogether, the three MEUs provided over 6,000 additional Marines to MNFI, more than a full-strength Army Brigade combat team. Finally, six Iraqi battalions assembled to participate in the operation, two of which, the 36th Commando Battalion and a battalion from the Special Police Commando Brigade, had been involved in almost every coalition combat action in 2004. The operation unfolded in three phases marked by far more deliberate preparations than had occurred in April. The first consisted of shaping actions, including airstrikes and psychological and information operations to confuse the entrenched insurgents and kill key leaders. Special Operations Forces played a key role in this phase, driven in part by their recognition of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's rise to the top of the insurgency. Political anxieties within coalition headquarters and the Iraqi government, still raw from April's truncated operation, led to a prohibition on ground assault missions into the city, so the special operators turned to precision manned and unmanned airstrikes instead. 
Obtaining approval for these missions was difficult, as fear of civilian casualties led to approval levels that ranged from the MNFI headquarters to Secretary of Defense or SecDef Donald Rumsfeld, and often targets disappeared before they could be struck. To speed up the approval process, special operators found an innovative way to minimize collateral damage by pairing a joint direct attack munition guidance system with the smallest bomb in the U.S. Air Force inventory and using a completely vertical angle of attack to drop the bomb. The result was a weapon that could flatten a single house with little damage to nearby buildings. With these changes made, Approval authority was delegated to special operations forces for most missions, and they worked with the MNFW headquarters to identify and strike key targets that would help in the coming battle. Information operations also played a critical role in the first phase of the operation as the coalition sought to prevent scenes of civilian suffering that were prevalent during the April battle. Warned by leaflets and broadcasts of the impending assault on their town, the vast majority of Fallujah's civilian population fled. With the city mostly empty of civilians, MNFW began the second phase of the operation, isolating Fallujah by seizing the peninsula, western bridges, and the city's hospital, while jamming communications within the town and cutting off its electricity. On the evening of November 8th, Marines and soldiers began the third phase, the actual assault of the city, with RCTs 1 and 7 attacking abreast from north to south, supported by the Army's 2nd Battalion, 7th Cavalry Regiment, and 2nd Battalion, 2nd Infantry Regiment. Concerned that the railroad tracks and high berms on the north side of the city would be a barrier to armored vehicles, the assault force breached them, using a combination of combat engineers and close air support that included dropping 2,000-pound guided bombs, after which the lead elements entered the outskirts of the city early on the morning of November 9th. Coalition analysts had estimated in October that 4,500 hardcore fighters were waiting in the city, against which MNFI had gathered nearly 18,000 soldiers, marines, and special operators. As the coalition troops moved into the city, they faced a well-entrenched enemy that had emplaced hundreds of IEDs to disrupt the assault, forcing the attackers to move slowly from house to house and block to block in urban fighting reminiscent of the Battle of Hue during the Vietnam War. The toll on tactical leaders was high. The 2nd Battalion, 2nd Infantry lost its command sergeant major, while the company commander and executive officer for Company A were both killed, leaving its first sergeant in temporary command. In a show of special operations and conventional force collaboration, SEALs integrated their forces with Marine battalions to add momentum to the advance, a combination that proved highly successful with SEAL snipers achieving 66 confirmed kills during the battle. Against this onslaught, the insurgents mounted a fluid defense, organized in small groups of three to six men equipped with small arms and rocket-propelled grenades. The insurgents originally planned to reposition their forces elsewhere in Anbar and North Babil before the battle to be able to open a second front as the coalition began its assault. However, the numerous coalition troops dedicated to the cordon around Fallujah trapped the insurgents inside the city. The strength of the cordon and the speed at which it appeared surprised the insurgent leaders, who had expected a weak perimeter around the city similar to the one the coalition had in place during the April battle. Yet, while the cordon prevented the opening of a second front, it was not airtight, and Zarqawi, Janabi, and several other Mujahideen Shura Council leaders escaped on November 8th. As the main effort of the coalition assault, 
RCT-1 and 2nd Battalion 7th Cavalry attacked the western portion of the city, which included the densely packed Jolan district, while RCT-7 and 2nd Battalion 2nd Infantry mounted a supporting strike in the eastern portion. With their M1 tanks and M2 Bradley fighting vehicles, the Army battalions proved to be much quicker at clearing terrain than the Marine commanders had expected, arriving at Highway 10, the city's main east-west road which coalition planners had named Phase Line Fran, by 2200 on November 9th. The rapid advance led MNFW to scrap its initial plan for RCT-7 to pivot west to clear the area south of Highway 10 alone, while RCT-1 consolidated north of the highway. Instead, on November 11th, RCT-1 continued clearing south, shoulder-to-shoulder with RCT-7. As the insurgents' operating space contracted, their fighting cells grew in size, sometimes reaching 50 fighters, many of whom chose to fight to the death rather than flee. Meanwhile, though MNFW had hoped that the rebuilt Iraqi army units would independently mop up insurgents that had remained behind in the northern part of the city, the Iraqi units proved unequal to that task, forcing each RCT to leave a full Marine battalion north of the highway to do the job. By November 13th, MNFW had crushed virtually all organized resistance, but fighting would continue for weeks as small cells of insurgents who had remained behind were gradually rooted out in sustained search and attack missions. End of Chapter 14, Part 1 Fighting to the Elections August to December 2004 Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021.